Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org. This is The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The U.S. Navy announced that it has relieved a commanding officer at the Red Hill Bulk Fuel Storage Facility of his duties effective immediately. The news came out of Washington, D.C. overnight. Captain Albert Hornyak was notified Monday that he is being relieved from his post as commanding officer of the Navy Supply Fleet Logistics Center. We talked to Richard Spiegel, the director of corporate communications this morning from the East Coast. I can tell you that on April 4th, which was yesterday, the commanding officer of Naval Supply Systems Command, Rear Admiral Peter Stamatopoulos, relieved the commanding officer of the NAVSUP Fleet Logistics Center, Captain Albert Lee Horniak, due to a loss of confidence in his ability to perform his duties following a series of leadership and oversight failures at the Red Hill Bulk Fuel Storage Facility. I can also tell you that this relief was specifically due to a lack of procedural compliance during a recent dewatering event inside of Red Hill and not due to any previous incidents. Okay, because we had put in a query last month about any disciplinary action. Uh, specifically, we asked about Captain Horniak, and we were told at the time that disciplinary action would not be taken until after the investigations were complete. But obviously, this is something different then. Yes, this is specifically related to, as I said, the recent dewatering event that occurred inside of Red Hill. So what normally happens in the military when someone is relieved of their command? You know, for our listeners out there who who maybe not know anything about how the military is structured and what generally happens during a disciplinary action, can you explain that? Sure. When a commander is relieved, they lose their job. And as in this case, Captain Horniak will be moved to a new assignment, which will be consistent with the needs of the Navy. Will that be here or another state? That has not probably been determined yet. Captain Horniak has not been charged with any crime nor charged with any alleged misconduct at this time. Okay, it's just oversight failures? Correct. And where was he prior to being the commanding officer? Prior to that, he was uh, with the Office of the Secretary of Defense in Arlington, Virginia. Okay, but he held no other position at Red Hill prior to August 2021? I have him being assigned there in, it looks like, July of 2021. And that's typical before taking command to arrive, you know, several weeks prior. And he is the only one that uh, any action has been taken against at this point? He's the only one in NAVSUP. Naval Supply Systems Command, I cannot speak for any other commands or, or the Navy as a whole. Gosh, how soon before he gets reassigned? I couldn't say. It could be very quickly. It's hard to say. Okay, but he was told yesterday morning? But he was told yesterday morning, and uh, Rear Admiral Aquavella uh, temporarily taken command. So Captain Korniak is no longer in, in charge. And as far as uh, Aquavella's position, has she been assigned here in Honolulu, or is she coming from elsewhere? So she is on the ground in Honolulu, but this is a temporary assignment, and she will take over the facility while Admiral Stamatopoulos finds a permanent replacement. The decision to relieve a commanding officer is a big decision, and it's always made with the utmost of care and, and thought and concern and after a thorough review by leadership. You know, in the Navy, commanders are responsible for their units, their sailors, and their mission. And when they fail that responsibility, this is an action that is sometimes taken. 
That was Richard Spiegel, the Director of Corporate Communications, who we talked to this morning. You know, we did first talk to Captain Bert Horniak back in October. He and Captain Gordy Meyer joined us on the conversation to talk about how the initial report of the May fuel release was due to operator error. So the investigation concluded that on 6th May of this year, the Red Hill facility experienced a release of 1,618 gallons of jet fuel. So in military terms, JP-5. Important to note that the Navy had the infrastructure in place to rapidly and effectively respond. Our systems successfully recovered all but 38 gallons of fuel. And uh, to clarify, the, the release occurred from the pipeline, not the tanks themselves. So the investigation had found that errors on the part of the Red Hill system operator was the primary cause of the release. Since the release, we have taken corrective action to improve safety in all aspects of Red Hill operations. So again, to to go to the investigation, overall, the root cause or primary cause was operator error. Specifically, the system operator not close all of the valves as specified in the operations order before beginning a fuel transfer. That was Captain Bert Horniak talking to us on the conversation back in October about a spill that happened in May before Horniak arrived on Oahu. The news about his firing left the Sierra Club with more questions about the status of the many investigations now underway that led to the fuel leaks that got into the drinking water and displaced thousands of military families and local businesses. Here's the Sierra Club's executive director, Wayne Tanaka. I was just filled with questions. Like, there wasn't a lot of detail in the press release. And it really highlights, for me, kind of the ongoing lack of transparency from the Navy, where we only get information when they want us to get it, and often without um, some critical details. In this case, hardly any details at all. You know, why is he being the first to be reassigned if he's only been in charge since August? You know, where is the investigative report? They said that they'd give us back in February, which was supposed to be about the Mace Bill that supposedly led to this current crisis. In that case, it took months for an investigation to take place, and then they had to redo it. And so it's curious that this current reassignment is because of the spill on Friday, just why it would have taken place so quickly. And of course, there are a number of people that have been in charge of this facility over the years, including back in May, when now they're saying up to 19,000 gallons leaked. You know, who was in charge when Navy officials wrongfully withheld evidence during our contested case hearing? Who was in charge in the years since 2014? 14, when there was a huge release, and in the subsequent years when folks from the Navy kept telling us that we were safe over and over again, even as they dragged their feet and failed to fulfill a number of the commitments they made uh, that currently now is leaving us in the blind as we're trying to navigate our way out of this current crisis. Well, Horniak is being replaced by someone else who is currently here, but it's an interim appointment on her part. You know, I, I would think that the military wants to make sure that whoever replaces Captain Horniak, you know, buttons things down because we're about to go into, you know, the, a major defueling of this facility. And we just want to make sure that there are no other spills going forward. Absolutely. I don't understand why they haven't been able to button things down over the years that this facility has posed a persistent and inherent threat to our water. You know, there's been release after release since 2014 and even before that. And the fact that they've continued to fail to keep this facility secure just certainly doesn't fill me with any confidence. It's scary. And I think this underscores, again, the need for us to hold the Navy accountable, ensure that they're transparent and much more transparent than they have been in the past, and, and also make sure that the regulators, that the government agencies, apart from the Navy, that keep us safe, fulfill their role and their responsibilities. 
That was Wayne Tanaka of the Sierra Club, which has been butting heads with the Navy over the spills at the Red Hill Underground Fuel Facility. Tanaka was reacting to the news that Commanding Officer Bert, uh, Captain Bert Horniak has been relieved of his command over the most recent spill of some 30 gallons of fuel and water that was reported on Friday. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about new drop-in workshops and spring art classes for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. Joining us for today's Reality Check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra. She has a story about how three Honolulu homeless shelters uh, are closing. Good morning, Christina. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. So this has got to be a hit. I mean, all the, the you know, the beds that, that that's just going to eliminate. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, three different shelters, um, two in Kaka'ako, one in Chinatown. Um, these are places that, you know, people experiencing homelessness really rely on, not only for a place to sleep, but to shower, store their things. So it's a big loss for, for those folks that, that count on those places. Um and they don't really have a clear future. Um, any of, of these nonprofits that 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 run these programs, um, we don't know when and where new locations will be popping up. So, what happens to the residents? It's they'll, they'll just have to find other places to go. I haven't really gotten clear answers on that. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the Family Assessment Center in Kaka'ako, um, it stopped accepting new intakes a couple weeks ago. So um, I, my understanding is that the people that were there transitioned into permanent housing and they just weren't taking in new people. So the people that would have relied on it have had to make do with, with other shelters. Um, there's the two other shelters are the Next Step Emergency Shelter, also in Kaka'ako, and then the Safe Haven um, shelter, and um, I guess it's sort of a rest stop as well in Chinatown. Well, the assessment center in Kakaako, that's in the park, right? Right on the park, yeah. And and that's the one that had the cubbies uh, for, for uh, families with young children, I think. Yeah, they, they kind of got like a cubicle to sleep in, in a big room, um, and that building is now going to be converted into office space for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, according to the state, um, and there there will be a, a different, um, oh, I'm sorry, that was the next step shelter, will be converted to OHA space, my mistake, um, and the, the new shelter that they will be replacing it, or really open two years ago, but their their idea of a replacement um, will offer more privacy. And the, the assessment center, now that was state property that was transferred to the city, right? That's right. So it was state land, and once it was converted to city land, um, it became city park land, which legally is a problem because the city parks cannot lease any land. It's supposed to be held in public trust, I guess, for public enjoyment. So um, they really had to tell the operators at the shelter that they had to find a new location, and they have not been able to do that. Um, They have considered a place in Waikiki, but um, there's some concerns it may not be suitable. So it's unclear um, what their plan is from here on out. And the Next Step Shelter, now that has been there for a very long time. 
and yeah, OHA owns the land now, so I guess we'll just see what they what they end up doing there. Right. I mean, there's just still so much need. Um, you know, at last check, Honolulu is still uh, one of the the cities with the highest rates of homelessness in the country. Um, I haven't heard of those numbers really dropping drastically even during the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of federal funding now for, for housing, um, but, you know, it's still something the city's struggling with. So these sorts of places, um, their absence will be felt. And then uh, uh, you also check with partners of care, partners in care, right? And, and they were kind of caught off guard by all of these closures. Yeah, it was sort of news to Director Laura Thielen. Um, She also noted that, you know, it's going to be difficult to replace these places because, um, you know, neighborhoods often don't want homeless services coming in. And she said it's a matter of working with communities to convince them that this is something that benefits everyone, that we really don't want people on the street. Well, we'll see what materializes in the months to come. But thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. This week kicks off National Poetry Month, so we're turning the spotlight on local poet Craig Santos Perez. He released his latest collection, Habitat Threshold, during the first year of the pandemic. It covers themes of eco-poetry, forest fires, species loss, contaminated waters, and the world our children will inherit. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote called Perez to ask about one of his poems, Rings of Fire. Rings of Fire, Honolulu, Hawaii. We host our daughter's first birthday party during the hottest April in history. Outside, my dad grills meat over charcoal. Inside, my mom steams rice and roasts vegetables. They've traveled from California, where drought carves trees into tinder. Paradise is burning. When our daughter's first fever spiked, The doctor said it's a sign she's fighting infection. Bloodshed surges with global temperatures, which know no borders. If her fever doesn't break, the doctor continued, take her to the emergency room. Airstrikes detonate hospitals in Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, South Sudan. When she crowned, my wife said, it felt like rings of fire. Volcanoes erupt along Pacific fault lines. Sweltering heat waves scorch Australia. Forests in Indonesia are raised for palm oil plantations. Their ashes flock like ghost birds to our distant rib cages. Still, I crave an unfiltered cigarette. Even though I quit years ago and my breath no longer smells like my grandpa's 
overflowing ashtray. His parched cough still punctures the black lungs of cancer and denial. If she struggles to breathe, the doctor advised, give her an asthma inhaler. But tonight, we sing happy birthday and blow out the candles together. Smoke trembles as if we all exhaled the same flammable wish. This poem is unrelenting. You pull specific locations, specific stories that are in the news, so that the reader knows exactly where they are in time and space. Do you find that when you are working with themes of eco-poetry, you shy away from metaphor because you don't really want to leave that room for interpretation? No, for me... And this poem in particular, I really wanted for it to be place-based and grounded here in Hawaii. At my daughter's birthday party, my parents cooking, coming to visit, then also kind of weave that local flavor to the global and bring in what was happening in the news when I wrote this poem. This was about six years ago, thinking about the wars that were going on around the world and the temperatures that were rising everywhere. In that sense, I really did want it to capture that realism of of what's happening. At the same time, to have those associative connections that poetry brings together uh, with such power and force, and to have it all kind of culminate in that moment of blowing out these candles on the birthday cake for my daughter amidst all these fires that are going on around the world. doesn't have a a lot of figurative language or, or metaphor necessarily, but everyday life has so much meaning already so that I wanted the poem just to draw that out. For our listeners, this poem is broken into two line stanzas, and you have this back and forth between what's happening at this one particular event with your family and what we're hearing on the news, what events we're dealing with all the time, and you play with that a little bit. One line that I really like is when you bring in, just after, they traveled from California where drought carps trees into tinder, paradise is burning. Paradise a word we are also familiar with, having grown up here, but also a town in California that was lost to forest fires. Are there other examples in this poem that you want to specifically point out where you're trying to get people to recognize things in their own life, even behaviors that they have when you talk about cooking meat or smoking a cigarette and how that contributes to these larger global changes? Thank you for noticing that moment in the poem. That is exactly what I wanted to highlight. You know, these beautiful places, California and Hawaii, experiencing many more wildfires. And, you know, at the same time, when I was writing this poem, there were many volcanoes erupting along the rings, ring of fire in the Pacific. There were these massive heat waves and fires in Australia. Similarly, in Indonesia, they were burning the tropical rainforest there to build these palm oil plantations. And the smoke from those fires in Indonesia were drifting across the Pacific. And I started connecting it to other personal catastrophes. I thought about my grandfather who 
was never able to quit smoking and died from lung cancer. You know, thinking about our diets as well, how much we eat meat, and that contributes, of course, to uh, global warming. And then, of course, war itself happening around the world. And even as we are recording this in Ukraine, again, creating all these fires and smokes contributing to climate change. And so it felt really overwhelming, even as I'm talking about this now. And the poem gave me a space to just try to work through all of those interconnections to keep living and to keep finding joy in those small moments of you know, a child's first birthday. The other thing that this brings to mind for the reader, and I'll remind listeners that this was a poem that was written six years ago, but when you hear a line like, when our daughter's first fever spiked, the doctor said, it's a sign she's fighting infection. It's difficult to have lived through the last two years and not immediately think of the pandemic. Have you revisited any of your work from this era with the events of the pandemic in mind? As you can see from this poem, my, my daughter has asthma. And so during the pandemic, we had to be really careful and we were really afraid that she would get it. We kept this really tight bubble to try to keep her safe. You know, I really did see a connection uh, between this poem and the pandemic. And of course, even during the pandemic, there's been record temperatures. Seems like every year during my daughter's birthday, it's the hottest in history again. This poem has really stayed with me and actually my daughter is sick today and she has a hundred degree fever this morning so we kept her home it just feels uh, really unrelenting and so in many ways I'm, I'm thankful to poetry for for giving me that space to cope with pandemics wildfires climate change war everything we're, we're living through you know I'm just thankful that I have this outlet to to help me get through the day Many of the poems in Habitat Threshold do reference your daughter. When you think back to the anxiety that spurs the creativity in this collection, how much of that anxiety is related to being a parent and looking at the changes in the world? So much. Um, you know, I've, I've always been an environmental activist and have always written poetry about these themes. But when I became a parent, it became so much more profound and urgent, especially when she was first born, so fragile, so completely helpless and vulnerable. And it just felt like every day I was feeling a new anxiety, whether it was her first fever or if she slept on the right side and she ate enough food and so on. But more than that, I started thinking about what planet, what Hawaii, what Pacific, is she going to inherit? Something that was kind of a gut punch to me in this poem is, is you present all of these incredible consequences, bloodshed, violence, rising temperatures, and then you have a line like, still, I crave an unfiltered cigarette, even though I quit years ago. And to me, that embodies the reluctance we all feel to change the way we live our lives, to give up things that are pleasurable, even if they aren't good for us. Can you speak a little bit to why you wanted to incorporate that tone into this poem? I think it's important to, to really reckon with how we and myself personally are complicit in many of the environmental damages that are happening now. You know, I used to 
to chain smoke. When I was younger, I still eat meat, even though I know that's that's really unhealthy for, for the planet. I have a, a hybrid Prius, but I still drive. And so that also contributes, you know, in poetry for me, it's, it's a space to be honest and vulnerable. And if that means critiquing our own lifestyles, then I think it's important to bring that into the poem. Just in the six or seven years since you first wrote Rings of Fire and your daughter has, has grown up a little bit, we have seen the consequences of climate change escalate. They're becoming more and more normalized, more violent storms, less rainfall, hotter days, heat waves. When you think of someone like your daughter or someone your daughter's age reading this poem, a decade, two decades from now, where climate change is normal. A changed climate is what we live with. Do you think they'll be able to be sympathetic to that feeling of reluctance we all have now about giving up our way of life? That's a really profound question. You know, thinking into the future, if, if there is still a future in which our, our children grown up are, are reading poetry, perhaps there will still be, be hope left then. I hope, you know, she does look back at these times that she would know that at least her dad was being honest <laughs> with himself and that she would know from, from my actions uh, and my activism that, you know, I did, I did fight for her to protect these sacred lands and waters. And, you know, that I hope at that point too, she will be writing, maybe writing her own poetry. Uh, about the situation then. And I've been so inspired by the youth climate movement around the world that perhaps she'll, she'll be part of that as well and, and working hard to, to correct and, and maybe even undo the mistakes of, of our generation. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Let's take a moment and listen back to your poem. Rings of Fire, Honolulu, Hawaii. We host our daughter's first birthday party during the hottest April in history. Outside, my dad grills meat over charcoal. Inside, my mom steams rice and roast vegetables. They traveled from California, where drought carves trees into tinder. Paradise is burning. When our daughter's first fever spiked, the doctor said it's a sign she's fighting infection. Bloodshed surges with global temperatures which know no borders. If her fever doesn't break, the doctor continued, take her to the emergency room. Airstrikes detonate hospitals in Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, South Sudan. When she crowned, my wife said it felt like rings of fire. Volcanoes erupt along Pacific fault lines. Sweltering heat waves scorch Australia. Forests in Indonesia are raised for palm oil plantations. Their ashes flock like ghost birds to our distant rib cages. Still, I crave an unfiltered cigarette. Even though I quit years ago and my breath no longer smells, like my grandpa's overflowing ashtray. His parched cough still punctures the black lungs of cancer and denial. If she struggles to breathe, the doctor advised, give her an asthma inhaler. 
But tonight, we sing happy birthday and blow out the candles together. Smoke trembles as if we all exhaled the same flammable wish. That was poet Craig Santos Perez reading his poem, Rings of Fire, during his interview with the conversation's Savannah Harriman Pote. You can hear more of Perez's work this Thursday during a talk with fellow poet Brandy Nalani McDougall as part of this year's Big Read Hawaii event. We'll have more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. When you think of local food, the plate lunch, a mixed plate might be the first thing that comes to mind. But Chinese food is just as much a part of local cuisine. Today, we hanaho an interview about a local cookbook celebrating dim sum entitled Yum Yum Cha. The book was put together by Lynette Lotam. She's the author of two other Chinese cookbooks, but this one was a little different. It's a nod to her teacher, Muriel Miura, who listeners may remember on the Gas Company cooking show. There's something so comforting about dim sum. Well, I just think it's a social thing. So, you know, I called the book Yum Yum Cha because Cantonese-speaking people won't say, let's go eat dim sum. They say, Yum Cha, you want to drink tea with me? And I guess that's, you know, a more polite way, right? You're saying, Catherine, let's go drink tea, but really you're going to be eating everything in sight. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the polite way, Yum Cha. So I just did a play on that Yum Yum Cha. But it was wonderful for me to learn more about all these things that I eat all the time. I mean, I I love dim sum, so it was fun for me to really learn about it more in an academic way. Well, I just saw my favorites in the first couple of favorites (laughs) in the book, and there is so much to learn. The one that I had my eyes on was the uh, bean curd wrap. And that, everybody, every restaurant in Hawaii makes it differently. It is made from soybeans, you know, like tofu, but the texture is nice. In Japanese, they call it um, yuba. It's like a, you know, a tougher texture. And people will fill it with meats or shredded vegetables, but um, everybody makes it a different way. But I didn't realize how complicated it was because it's almost like you wrap it, then you deep fry it, then you braise it in a sauce. So, you know, that's how you get that wonderful crisp texture, but it's simmered in sauce, so very tasty. And so do you have particular favorites yourself? Oh, yes. I love lobak go, which is the grated turnip, and they put a little meat in that, and they steam it first and then pan fry it. So when you go to eat dim sum and, you know, if you're going to one where they still have the cart, when they're frying things, that's one of them I always ask for. So the first one in the book is the pork hash. Yes, 
I think so. I mean, I, I feel like that's universal, that people just love pork hash. And Chinese, we call it siumai, or, you know, it supposedly looks like a little money bag, right? So, you know, Chinese, we always like the good luck, too. So you're eating something that looks like money. <laughs> and mm-hmm. dumplings, they're small bites. And, right. you know, you can have just a variety of different things in one sitting. So I think that, that's, that's what makes it so delightful. The all dim sum is made on basically three decisions. What filling you choose, what covering you have, and how you're going to cook it. So, for example, Jin Dui, what you might be familiar with, is like a mochi rice, sticky rice, and the filling could be black bean or red bean or coconut. And it's deep fried. You'll see those deep fried balls that then we roll in sesame seeds. So when it's sweet, it's called jin dui. But if you have a savory filling, it's called ham sui gok. So I had eaten it when I was small, but I had completely forgotten that many of these, there's a sweet version and a salty version. And then what about soup dumplings? Because we've heard a lot about that. Yes, that is northern. Isn't that interesting? So now when you go to eat dim sum, people want that. But dim sum is classically southern Chinese. So you'll say it's Cantonese kind of food. But northern Chinese invented the soup dumplings. And that you can make. It's basically you're making a aspect or jello from soup broth and then putting it in a dumpling and then steaming it. And then when you steam it, that jelly or jello turns to liquid, right? So it's ah, soup. that's but the that's secret. Very difficult to make in that, you know, you have to steam it the right time and you have to serve it immediately because once it breaks, you know, all the soup goes out of that dumpling. I didn't realize that our Chinese food was from one village of Canton. So other places around the country will have many different varieties. And especially now, there'll be Shanghainese specialties or spicier specialties from the north. But traditionally, southern China was the place for dim sum. So when you've traveled and you've visited Chinatown in different uh, cities, when you pick up a menu, I mean, how challenging is that? No, it is hard. I mean, of course, you know, Hawaii Chinese, we come from peasant stock, right? I mean, if you were rich and had servants, you would not come to work in the plantation fields, right? So a lot of the things I say are peasant talk, and I didn't know that. So I did ask, I love chicken feet, you know, the braised chicken feet. Mm-hmm. And in New York, I asked for, literally, I said chicken feet. And I didn't realize that that is so low class, they didn't even understand me. Wow. Because they call it Phoenix Claws. Wow. Right? It's like a fancy name, so you don't have to say you're eating feet. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just some dialect differences that Hawaii people, we say a certain thing. And even like we'll go and we'll say, oh, we want manapua, and that's char siu bao. Or we want pepiao, and that's the half moon. On the mainland, they call it fang guo or gok jai. And, you know, all the baked treats, you know, like the baked manapua. You know, I, I see yeah. here that you, yeah. you have a whole thing with Royal Kitchen because I discovered the baked manapua, and it was just like, oh, you know, it, it's just delightful to learn more about it. Right. They have, like, 
sausages. You, they even put in the Chinese lap chung, which is the sweet Chinese sausage, and they have chicken bao. They have all these different flavors, so I love it there because they have to have the symbols on the outside yes. of what it is, like how many dots, or is there a face or something, so so you can tell what's what, so you're not like playing Russian roulette when you get a whole tray. <laughs> you have some kind of coating. We have a section just on the different sauces, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And they're very easy, and just it helps change it up. Sometimes you cook the same things, and you just can look at a book and go, oh, let me try that, and if you like the taste, it's good. But I have learned that food is so personal. So some people will tell me, oh, Lynette, I hated that recipe. And I'll say, I'm so sorry. That's my favorite. (laughs) Recipes are a guide. And then you just make it how you like it. That was a replay of our interview with author Lynette Lotom from earlier this year. She was talking about her recently published cookbook, Yum Yum Cha. And that's it for our show today. I'm Catherine Cruz. Thanks for tuning in to the conversation. Now go have lunch. (laughs) 